Jobs. I am your host, Paul Newen. Thanks for listening again. Uh, if you've been enjoying what you've been hearing, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at No Small Jobs Pod. We also have a Facebook page where we have regular updates about the podcasts that are coming up. That is No Small Jobs Pod or the website. Guess what? It's no nosmalljobspod.com.au uh, where we have uh, new episodes as well as insights into the guest as well as my own perspectives and various other workings of my brain. Um, please make sure you subscribe wherever you get good podcasts. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Podcast Addict, um, and soon to be a number of other ones depending on when I can get off my own ass. Uh, please rate and review five stars. If you have anything that you'd like to see, if any guests you could suggest or any improvements to the show, feel free to post it up and I will do my best to, uh, to adapt as I feel like. So today, our guest is Emily. Emily is a forensic botanist. Hi, Emily. Hi, Paul. How are you going? Not too bad. All right. Uh, let's start with the obvious question. What is forensic botany? Uh, so botany is the study of plants mm-hmm. and forensic refers to anything to do with the uh, courts or the legal process. So a forensic botanist is somebody who looks at plants in that context um, and I work for uh, the state government forensic science laboratory. Mm. And so t- talk us through what an, uh, an average day would be for you. Okay, well, um, one of the big focuses of forensic botany is illicit plants, so plants that are in themselves illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and probably the most common of those that everyone knows about is cannabis. So I spend a lot of my time uh, looking at cannabis, whether that's in the lab or out at a crime scene. Uh, so my role is to quantify and identify the plant material. So, uh, count the number of plants, weigh the plant material, uh, make descriptive notes about it. And then from that down the track, I can produce a certificate of a botanist, which can be used as evidence in court. And I might have to, uh, provide further statements about the plant material or go to court and give evidence on that. So what is the value of knowing the, the, kind of cannabis plant that has been grown? Well, first of all, you need to know that it is cannabis. And every now and again, something will be seized and it turns out that it's not cannabis. So you've got to, you've got to be able to demonstrate that the person had possession of or was cultivating an illicit plant. Uh, what, what, what commonly gets confused with cannabis? Well, it's, it's not common. <laughs> but uh, for instance, if you've got finely chopped up plant material until you put that under the microscope it can be very difficult to tell whether it's cannabis or perhaps a legal herbal high smoking mix or mixed herbs something like that (laughs) we've also had um very small plants growing outdoors Mm -hmm. and when they've come into the lab some of them have been cannabis others have been some type of weed that was growing nearby (laughs) right so you know that's obviously there was cannabis there but Maybe the plant count is different to uh, what was originally thought. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and how did you get into forensic botany? Uh, it, it was a, a long and complicated journey, Paul. <laughs> well, how, how about we start from the beginning? So, when you, when you left high school, what did you start by doing? Okay. Well, when I was at high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. I went along to the careers counsellor and did an aptitude test. And on that, I came out scoring equally high on scientific and artistic endeavours. So at that point, I thought, well, I can always do something artistic as a hobby. Science is a better one for a career. So 
I went on to study science at uni. Mm-hmm. I did a Bachelor of Science degree. I majored in zoology, hoping that I could uh, get a job as David Attenborough when I graduated. <laughs> that didn't quite work out. In fact, I found that jobs in zoology were few and far between in uh, Tasmania where I was based. So, what I mean, just uh, I know we're going to move past this at some point, but what what jobs do you... I mean, it, other than David Attenborough, what jobs can you aspire <laughs> to be as a zoologist? Oh, no, is it, I mean, I, in my mind, it's literally zookeeper. That's all I can think of. Uh, well, there... Uh, I mean, zoology, obviously, it's a study of animals. So, you might uh, need to do some research. So, a lot of zoologists are based at universities researching animals in the field. Um, you might be looking at animal physiology, ecology, animal behaviour. There's lots of different aspects to it. Mm. Um, probably most zoologists who are working in Australia are doing uh, field projects for government-based organisations, so the Department of whatever. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but basically doing research in the field to find out things like how human impacts uh, affecting our animals. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to know things about the range and distribution of animals so we know if they're becoming more endangered or if things are happening to them. Okay. But but yours, your interest in zoology, was it, was that just simply for a love of animals or was it a more practical idea? I think, I think it was really just something that I was interested in uh, mm. growing up. So I never really had a clear idea of what I was going to do as a job. I just thought, oh, surely if I'm interested in this and I study hard and I'm really good at it, then I'll get a job out of it at the end. But mm. it wasn't really a vocation-orientated idea. I mean, did you ever receive much guidance while you were doing your zoology degree as to, yeah, the, the, na- the kinds of jobs that are out there for you? I have to say not a lot um, or maybe what there was didn't sink in. Mm. I mean, it's, it's tough really because, I mean, that's that's a lot... Oh, actually, I don't know if I'm necessarily finding that, but that, that would be my concern with something. Um, see, I, I like the idea of learning for learning and the learning for the love of it and learning yeah. because you're passionate about it because I think passion is really important when it comes to your career because it, it, it helps you, it helps sustain your longevity. It helps you because at some point a job... Um, becomes a job because other aspects of it, like the logistics and the management and the people skills, I mean, that's a whole different thing and that can really suck the love out of a job. So you really need that passion. But I guess, yeah, I, I worry about I worry about people who, who do that and then come out of with a degree and no real knowledge about how they can utilize that degree to their, to their advantage. I mean, with a lot of the previous guests that I've had, a lot of them will have taken some sort of degree and and just kind of found opportunities by accident. They just happened to find the right person or go to the right place or, um, or you know, um, work at the right job that happened to lead on to the next job. Um, so, it, yeah, it, I guess it concerns... I mean, I know that universities nowadays have probably have a slightly better careers department and better guidance in that sense. But, you know, I, I, I can't imagine how frightening that would be to, to spend what would be three, four years in a degree, come out of it thinking, what the hell do I do now? Well, I suppose I was applying for jobs, but um, when I graduated, it was the Howard era, youth unemployment was really high. And mm. I spent nine months looking for any type of job, just applying for anything that I was vaguely qualified for, probably missing out on a lot of things because I was overqualified, but then missing <laughs> out on other things because I didn't have enough work experience, even though I had my degree. Mm. So I eventually uh, got a traineeship working in the Royal Hobart Hospital, and that was doing 
the sort of specimen reception, working in the prep room and wash up area. I can remember like my first week having to load huge bags full of urine samples into an autoclave and they were leaking all over me and going through my lab coat and I was just thinking, I've got a degree, why am I doing this? (laughs) But actually it turned out to be a really uh, good job in terms of getting practical experience that then allowed me to go on and apply for other things. Mm. Obviously, certainly well away from zoology unless you count urine as (laughs) human urine as part of zoology skills. Yeah, but even though I'd majored in zoology, I'd I'd studied biology more broadly. So Mm. at least um, I had some... Uh, connection with the area that I was working in being a a pathology lab. Mm. So where did your career take you to next? So after working in that role for about a year, I decided on a change of scenery and I moved over to London for a couple of years and worked as a locum lab technician and at various hospitals around London. So I was doing everything from, yeah, pipetting on bench work, making up agar plates to... Um, handing out specimen jars to gentlemen who had to give us a sample for sperm motility testing. Mm. Uh, so that was, yeah, interesting and I got a lot more career experience and life experience out of that. Was the choice to move to London purely personal? Like you just, I want, you just wanted to be somewhere different or was it actually partly career as well? It was really personal. My partner at the time wanted to go overseas for a couple of years and I, I kind of Went along with him, mm. um, but it turned out to be a great experience, personally and career-wise, just uh, broadened my horizons a lot. Mm. But I came back to Australia when my working holiday visa was up, thinking I don't want to keep working in medical labs my whole life, because partly because, because I'd been working as a locum, I'd been given a lot of very routine, boring tasks to do. They wanted something they could just put me on straight away to free up more skilled people for other things. So Mm. in one of the places I worked, they were literally building a robot to replace the job that I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, so what, uh, what inspired you to to your next job? So with that in mind thinking, okay, I need, I need to do something different. I want something that engages my brain a bit more than just pipetting samples in a lab. Uh, I was just looking around at the sorts of jobs that were being advertised that I thought might suit my skills. And I went along to an interview uh, for a job as a pharmaceutical rep. Now, I didn't actually get that job, but in doing the interview and doing the uh, the process, I sort of learned a lot more about what the role of a pharmaceutical rep was, and I thought maybe this is something I could do. Um, and I went out and got a job selling alarm systems door-to-door in order to get sales experience mm-hmm. so that I have a better chance of getting uh, future pharmaceutical rep jobs that came up. Right. Uh, I did that for few months it was pretty hard work and not very well paid I actually was almost on the verge of giving up on that idea and I'd gone back to working in a uh, microbiology lab when I got a call from a recruitment agency and applied for a job with Servia Laboratories and actually uh, got it right and how long did you do that job for I did that job for less than a year mm-hmm. as it turned out I wasn't well suited to being a sales rep. I, <laughs> I really loved learning about the products. Uh, I loved being able to sit down with a, a specialist and have a one-on-one conversation about the benefits of the, the drugs that I was selling and promoting. Uh, but at heart, I wasn't really a salesperson and I had that, that kind of imposter syndrome the whole time where I felt like I was dressed up in a suit 
and putting on makeup and it wasn't really me that was walking into those meetings and putting the hard sell on doctors. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly I certainly share that sentiment as well. I find it hard to, to convince someone to do something that I'm not convinced of either unless I see the merits of it or I can see the benefits of it. I, I don't know whether you call me a pessimist or a realist is up to you, but I'm certainly the kind of person who would struggle to sell something for the sake of selling something. It, it comes off very inauthentic for me. I was lucky in that the the products I was promoting, I genuinely believed in. They were they were all, you know, kind of leaders in their field. Mm. It was just at heart, I'm not really a people person. Uh. So I had trouble with that aspect of, you know, walking into a room with someone I might have never met or met once before and doing the, oh, how are you going? How are your kids? You know, and remembering even remembering people's names and recognizing them when I saw them in a different context was a real struggle for me. So mm. uh, I also, that work environment was a little bit hostile uh. because the the person that I'd replaced had been promoted to the area manager. So uh, basically any successes that uh, came out of my area, she attributed them to her previously having a good relationship with those doctors, but any failures were all mine. Oh, right. Lovely. Got to love human interactions. <laughs> um, obviously, that's why you didn't stay, stick around for that long. So, where, where did your career take you next? Uh, so, after that, I, I was basically, at the end of my probation, given a choice of, well, resign or we'll sack you. <laughs> so, I resigned. <laughs> It was, a, it was a mutual agreement that I wasn't the right person for that role. Mm. Uh, I then worked for my dad in his jewellery shop for about a year, mm-hmm. which was never a particular aspiration. The rest of my family are all jewellers. Ah. Um, and I was always kind of the black sheep, I suppose, <laughs> in that I wasn't, wasn't really interested in jewellery. So after, after doing that, I got back into lab work, this time at the Red Cross Blood Service. Mm-hmm. And uh, I got a scientist position there. I was actually quite enjoying that. And then after about 12 months, they decided that they were going to close the Hobart Laboratory and move all the quality control testing that we were doing over to Adelaide. Ah, jeez. So in this case, this time your your hand was forced in terms of the next career move. Yes. I mean, I could have moved to Adelaide, but obviously I had my partner in Hobart. I had a house. I had friends and my family there. Yeah. I I was more uh, committed to living in Hobart than I was to that particular job. So once again, I found myself in a position where I was just looking around the rather uh, lacking Hobart job market Mm -hmm. for any job that I could potentially have the right skills for and turn my hand to. And as it happened, there was a temporary technical officer position at the forensic laboratory around at that time. And I applied for that. I mean, I mean, talking about the idea of uh, priorities, talking about the things that influence your decision to, to, to your decisions in general, really, as you said, you know, in Hobart, things were quite settled and there were a lot of commitments there, but what, I mean, looking back on it, what would a job have had to have offered you in order for you to think, oh, actually, maybe it's worth chasing this dream? I guess I've never been that ambitious in terms of my career. Um, Things outside of work have generally been more important to me than uh, the job itself. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Perhaps if I'd, you know, when I first graduated, I'd been offered a position going down to Antarctica as a field zoologist, I would have jumped at that. But it would have 
taken a, a really special job to make me move into state at that point. Mm. I mean, I, mean I, I, I don't know. I, like, I, I, as I've sort of mentioned before on the podcast, I'm in the midst of a, a career change myself and I have to kind of decide for myself what is my priority. It's one thing when you're in your 20s or teens and you're thinking, oh, yeah, I'll just, you know, without, if you don't have any commitments, if you don't have a partner, you don't have a mortgage, you're just going to, oh, yeah, I'm just going to chase this, this job and see where it takes me. But you try to do that in your 30s or 40s. It's It's not that... It's not that you don't want to. It's just that there are other things that yeah, become important. There's to so you. many other considerations. Yeah. Um. And and look, obviously, you've. I mean, we haven't even gotten to your your current job yet. You know, and it it would seem that uh, throughout your life you have spent it dipping your toe in various fields and seeing what suited you and ending up deciding actually it wasn't for you or or you'd had enough of it. You know. Um. I guess. I guess. My question is, yeah, what what's important what's important to you now? Um, well, again, my job's important to me, but things outside of work are important to me as well. Mm. Having said that, I have now moved into state for work. So uh, I spent about ten years working as a technical officer in the uh, state forensic lab in Tasmania. And when I first got that job, I'd been working as a scientist and at the blood service and I, I took a step back to a technical officer role and I remember the, the director of the lab saying to me when I started, oh, there'll be some scientist positions coming up probably within the next year. Well, it took about eight years for a scientist <laughs> position to come up and then when I applied, it went to somebody with eight years more experience than me who'd moved oh. from an interstate lab. Oh. So that was really frustrating because... Being a scientist was part of my identity. I'd studied science. I thought of myself as a scientist. And when I missed out on that job, I actually sought counselling over the fact that I was um, basically, I felt trapped in this role that wasn't allowing me to work to my full potential. Mm. Um, It was, yeah, that was a really hard time. But I'd actually had the opportunity to come over to Victoria for a a stint of about a year and work in a temporary position as a forensic botanist in the laboratory here. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, that was a move that was made partly for personal reasons. I just split up with my long-term partner. I needed a change at the time that this particular role came up. Mm. Um, Now, I'd actually been trained in cannabis identification as part of my role working in the lab in Tassie. Mm. And so I was well-placed to to take up that position and I was able to take leave without pay from my job in Hobart for the time that I moved over to Melbourne. So that was what really got me into forensic botany. That was basically the first I'd heard of the job was when I applied for it and got it. You know, <laughs> I, did, I didn't know what a forensic botanist was until I was doing that job. And other than the fact that you'd already had some training, what exactly appealed to you about this job? Uh, well, the fact that it was a scientist position. So... Mm. I'd actually be reporting on my own work. I'd be, um, you know, signing off on stuff that I'd done rather than doing the work on behalf of somebody else and them signing off on the report and going to court and giving the evidence on it. Well, I mean, it's on that, what is what is the driver for a scientist? I mean, obviously, I know you don't speak for all scientists, but for you, as you said, part of it was ownership, the ability to be able to... Um, put your name to things and, and, and put in, put in like, use your skills uh, in, a, in a useful kind of way. But for you, what is, what is yeah, the, the driver for you as a scientist? 
I think for me, being a scientist is about using the scientific method and applying that to uh, to real world scenarios. In this case, our forensic casework. It's about being rigorous in your approach, uh, being unbiased, being thorough, and being able to produce results that stand up to scientific scrutiny. Now, uh, I think everybody in the, the forensic science world strives for that, but I felt like I had a more of a, a grasp on it and more of an identifying, more, I identified more with the, the scientific aspect of it than perhaps even some of my senior colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um, and that why, was why it was frustrating for me, particularly after I came back from my temporary stint as a forensic botanist in Melbourne and went back to my technical officer role. And I'd had um, some of the more senior staff would come to me for advice when they needed to know stuff about cannabis because obviously I had more experience than anyone else in the Tasmanian lab at that point. Mm. Um, yeah, it was just frustrating that I couldn't take ownership of my own work and be recognised for my skills and the way I thought about things. So how long how long did you spend being a technical officer uh, having returned from your forensic botany stand? Uh, let's see. So it was it was 2010 when I was over here and it was 2000, the end of 2014 before a permanent position at the Victorian lab came up. So... It was about three years. Okay. And, I mean, in, in those three years, as you said, you'd already been sort of frust- – you, you were becoming increasingly frustrated by the fact that you had this expertise but that wasn't being acknowledged or, I imagine, remunerated. Um, were you waiting – like, was for those years, did you just spend it holding your breath, waiting for a position like that to open up? Yeah, pretty much. Mm. Um, either at the, at the Tasmanian lab or at the Victorian lab. I, I was still not – uh, unhappy with my place of work and I loved living in Hobart. I had a house there. I had friends there. But here's the personal influence coming into it again. I'd started dating a guy that I'd met while I was in Melbourne mm. and we were doing a long-distance relationship. So that was an extra incentive for me to uh, move to Melbourne when a job came up. I mean, let's let's say that the, the influence of this partner wasn't there. Would you have moved? Yes, I think so. Mm. I... I think a lot of people at the time assumed that I was moving over here to be with Gary. No offence, Gary, but I was <laughs> I was really moving for the job and it's, you were just an added bonus. <laughs> um, would you have considered going into, uh, into other states? I mean, uh, we um, I, I, I think you've, you've told me before this podcast that there are less than a dozen forensic botanists in Australia, but, you know, if, if the position was did open up somewhere like Adelaide or Queensland, would you have moved? Well... Over the course that I'd been working in forensics, definitely there were positions that had come up at other labs. Um, not as a necessarily as a forensic botanist, but I'd been working more in the biological examination area as a technical officer, so I could have um, looked at getting a scientist position elsewhere in that field. But uh, Victoria or Melbourne was more appealing because um, my sister already lived over here. It was a you know, it was the, the, the place that you went if you were from Hobart. You went to Melbourne to go to concerts and to do the, <laughs> do the things that only happened on the mainland when we were kids. Yep. So, you know, I was more familiar with Melbourne and um, had connections here already. So whereas moving to, say, Sydney or Brisbane or Adelaide was less appealing because it seemed so much more remote. 
Mm. So, what are the things you like about forensic botany? What are the things I like about it? Well, I, I like working with plants. You know, I, I studied botany as part of my degree. I find plants interesting. Uh, I like the the variety in the work. So, some days you're out in the field. Some days you're working in the lab. Some days you're just working at your desk doing uh, reports or checking other people's work or working on quality accreditation stuff or business improvement stuff. So, there's lots of different aspects to your day-to-day work. And then you're going to court as well. A lot of people who work in forensics find that a challenging aspect of the job. You know, it's quite a big thing to be standing up in court and maybe getting questioned by defence who are trying to pick holes in your evidence or, you know, personally attack you or something like that. Uh, Does that happen often? Where you get personally attacked? I mean, I assume they'd want to pick holes in your evidence, of course, but do you? Does it, is it often that you get personally attacked? Not that often, but it does happen. Um, but I, as I said back at when I was in high school, I was sort of had this aptitude for artistic sort of expression as well as the scientific thing. And uh, one of the one of my other favourite subjects, apart from science, was drama. So yeah, I actually I like speaking in front of an audience, I don't mind the idea of having to get up and be an expert in front of a court full of people and a magistrate or a jury. So I don't mind that aspect of it. Um, That's not to say I've had any particularly challenging court cases so far. Usually it's just routinely running through the evidence. It would be interesting to see what happens if I ever do decide or they do decide to personally attack me but we do a lot of training in preparation for that so I've done an expert evidence workshop that and various other training that sort of takes you through the sorts of things you can expect to encounter in court and gives you strategies for for dealing with that. Mm. Are there any other aspects of the job that you'd find challenging? Um, I think... Sometimes there's the feeling that you can get sort of bogged down in the administrative side of things. And I think almost everybody feels that in their job sometimes. You know, you you have a, an obligation to uh, meet accreditation requirements, which involves sometimes a lot of paperwork, uh, a lot of recording of stuff, um, you know, things like maintenance and calibration, recording all your training, Um but it's really it's just part of the job, you know. We have to we have to be an accredited lab so that our results we're producing are reliable and reproducible and accurate. Um, and I'm lucky enough that I work with a really good bunch of people, so that's one of the other things that I really enjoy about the job. I imagine if you didn't, that would be one of the things that could be frustrating or discourage you from going to work. Mm. Um, we're, we're quite flexible in my workplace as well. So we can work flex time hours. Uh, I, my boss doesn't micromanage me, you know. We, <laughs> we kind of have some flexibility in the day-to-day work that we do mm. as long as we get everything done that needs to be done. And I think that kind of autonomy is really important to your enjoyment of a job. 
I mean, I guess that's just a lot. Of, that's just fortunate more than anything, really, because it, it's you know any workplace should have the capacity to be able to support their uh, their employees in the way that you're you feel like you're being supported. But it's not an inherent part of it either, is it? You know, any any time you add in some sort of hierarchy or administration, um, you mix that in with some personalities, and there's there's always the risk that things might mismatch. Yeah, for sure. So I mean, there's so much more to a job than your actual role and your job title. Mm. There's the the location that you're in. There's the people that you work with. There's even things like the the building that you're in, whether that's comfortable <laughs> and pleasant. And so you mentioned earlier about um, when you were a technical officer, feeling a bit stagnant, feeling like yeah, you weren't you didn't have room to move. Where do you think this job will take you? That's a very good question. At the moment, I'm I've been working in forensic botany for five years and I'm still learning and I'm still developing. So uh, one of the things that I'm working on at the moment is uh, learning to estimate plant ages or be authorised to give that evidence in court. So that's another training package that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Um, There's also things that require more experience like botanical trace evidence work. What does that mean? So... Uh, we've talked a bit about the sort of narcotic plant aspect of being a forensic botanist, but the other aspect is that plants can be involved incidentally in almost any type of crime. So whether it's linking a suspect to a crime scene or things like wooden tools being used to gain entry to a property or, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, plants kind of can spring up as a result of, or, you know, in conjunction with all sorts of cases from, you know, sexual assaults to homicides to property damage. So uh, our lab also works on those types of cases. But as you can imagine, they're very varied. So one case might involve looking at algae down a microscope. The other might be uh, looking at wood from an axe handle that's been used to chop someone up. So to get get authorised in all those varied types of examinations takes time and takes experience. Right. Um, and so, as I said, you're, are you in the process of doing that now, or that's something you hope to do? That's something that will sort of happen uh, as as time and work allows. Okay, I mean, so I guess on that, is there a linear trajectory for your job? Is there something that you're heading towards, other than like other than upskilling within the actual job itself? Are there other things that this job can lead you to? I suppose. Um, I mean, the obvious thing is to progress upwards into management um that's not necessarily something that i want to do in the short term mm. um if you get too far up into management it takes you away from actually doing casework and doing scientific work so well, absolutely and one can say that about pretty much any job uh, at some point you reach a pinnacle of these skills that you originally trained for, you've utilized them to your maximum. And then, but then it's this funny cultural expectation that you still need to, there still needs to continue to be upward mobility, but often it is into areas where you are are not necessarily naturally skilled, nor does your training necessarily allow for. So I know I've definitely said this on the podcast before, but as a GP, you know, um, you finish your qualifications and GP is one of the fastest training programs within medicine. But at the end of that, once you're a consultant, that's it. But everyone says, the next thing you need to do is own your own clinic. And I just think, but that's not medicine. Like that's not 
that's not why I got into this thing. Why would I want to own a business? I have no business acumen whatsoever. Yeah. Um, and it's, so, yeah, I always wonder about other industries, whether, yeah, whether it's exactly as you said, if you wanted to move into management, is that is that something that you have to do? Not necessarily. So, I think uh, there's more emphasis being now placed on forensic scientists being able to uh, be recognised as experts and move up in terms of their um, their pay and their uh, level and so forth without necessarily going into the, the management side of things. There's also, uh, I know people who've worked in forensic botany in the past have moved into the, the quality management area of the lab. Mm-hmm. So that's something else that I'd find interesting uh, in terms of coordinating accreditation activities and, and making sure the quality standards of our work are met. Mm. I mean, right now, it's it sounds like you're pretty satisfied with where your job is and the amount of uh, room to learn you have. What would motivate you to try and move into a more man- managerial role? I suppose if the opportunity was there, I'd, I'd go for it. But uh, realistically, you know, there's only six people working in the botany unit and... I know that the opportunities for that will be limited. Mm. Um, I mean, would you, do you think you'd be happy staying in your current role for the rest of your life? That's a very good question. I think eventually I, I would get to the point where I wanted a new challenge. Mm. Um, but for the foreseeable future, this job is, is challenging me. It, it's stimulating me and I'm still learning. So I'm quite happy with it for now. With your quali- current qualifications and experience, would you have to, would you have to remain within a botany or forensic field, or could you take your experience elsewhere? Uh, I could take my experience elsewhere. I mean, I've certainly got a lot of medical lab experience in the past. Uh, a lot of the the techniques that I've been trained in are not by any means uh, unique to forensics. So they're the sort of techniques that would be used in other scientific labs or analytical labs in private industry or different government departments. And in fact, um, I think that's one of the advantages in that I've got a general science degree rather than... Now there are a lot of people who are specifically studying degrees that relate to forensic science and I worry that that, that limits them a little. You know, that they, they, they have the opposite problem to me in that they've got a clear career aspiration. But then if they get to the end of their degree and the job isn't there in the field that they want, they're a bit more locked into that. If I was actually advising somebody who was interested in going into forensic science now, I'd still advise them to to study a general science degree in the field that they were interested in, whether that's biology or chemistry or physics, and then um, use their work experience to get into forensics. Do do, the, do your skills at the medical labs ever expire? You know, because I, the, I ask that because I know that... Um, so, so my, my, my husband's a, a former secondary school teacher, but he's been a full-time parent now for the last eight years or so. Um, and getting back into the workforce is a, is a challenge because, I mean, you know, in certain fields, it is quite common for people to take time off work for parental leave and such or parental responsibilities. But even then, it's uh, in particular, and unfortunately him as a man, the problem is that 
you know, you see a man be off work for eight years and you think, oh, why is that? So, is there is there ever concern that your previous skills may not necessarily translate or count? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the, I mean, in any sort of scientific discipline, the technology is moving ahead all the time and particularly in forensics, you know, I've worked in biological examination and uh, preparing samples for DNA profiling, that sort of thing. The technology in that sphere has really moved ahead, you know, even in the last five or ten years. So, you know, if I were to want to get back into that uh, field of forensics, I might find that I had to, you know, upskill or learn learn to use new instruments or new techniques. But the thing I think that's important is your ability to demonstrate that you can learn new skills. So I think having having worked in so many different roles in the past and helped out in so many different areas of the lab, particularly when I worked in Hobart, is a, a valuable demonstration of that. Uh, do you ever think you'd go into research? I'm probably beyond that point now. Most people who uh, are in research have sort of after they degree to go on to do postgraduate stuff and it's I think I feel like in the the research and academia side of things a lot of it's about connections with universities and people that you know and getting on involved in in research projects I'm probably like a little bit too out of touch with that area now to to do research as an actual job but mm. certainly I've done uh, I've been involved in doing small research projects within the roles that I've worked in in forensics, you know, preparing posters for conferences and testing out different techniques for, um, you know, identification of body fluids and that kind of thing. So it'd be good to do that as part of my current role. It'd be good if we had the opportunity to um, do some more research that might help us answer some of the questions we get asked in court, particularly about things like the growth of cannabis. But there's always the competing demands of casework too so yes uh, and and the sheer lack of hours in a day i imagine would, would impede your ability to do research too yes <laughs> um i mean it's it's interesting you say that you have the interest in research and and certainly should, if if the resources allowed within your existing role you would you would want to do it but it's, it is interesting to hear that uh your biggest barrier, at least in, in your mind, is the yeah, is the lack of connections. Is that you have to be in a certain position uh, at a certain time in order to achieve something that you do seem to genuinely want to do. And that fascinates me because then you kind of think, how do people then change their careers? Like if 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 that was something, if your passion for that was strong enough, and you had no, there was no opportunity for that within your existing role, would you would you seek out other opportunities? Yeah, potentially. Um, it's not something that I think, like, I'm, I'm interested from a personal point of view in research and I, I love reading about new developments in all sorts of scientific disciplines. Um, and I'd like to be able to, to do more of that side of things in relation to my current job. But in terms of research as a career, I know it's it can be very unstable in terms of most people are on contracts for a few years until the project that they're working on is up for a renewal or it 
it doesn't offer the sort of same sort of stability that you get just working in a full-time government job. Mm, yes. Uh, uh, and again, as, as we've mentioned a number of times during this podcast, the, the idea of priorities, uh, obviously depending on your age and what you're seeking out, um, really makes a difference as to how, what kind of jobs you seek and how you go about seeking it. So that, that certainly sits well. It sits well. Uh, is it consistent with what we've been talking about? We, um, you mentioned earlier about how um, to any, anyone looking to study forensic science to maybe look at it more broadly. Um, if anyone was interested in the field of forensic botany, do you have any other advice? Uh, probably don't even bother because you'll, <laughs> you'll be very lucky to actually get a job as a forensic botanist. I mean, yeah, don't, don't give up on your dreams, but I think there's a lot of emphasis put on almost too much emphasis put on following your dreams, you know, and uh, getting your dream job. Whereas I think I think of it more about finding your niche. So, yeah, study something that you're interested in. Have some idea of what career you could go into at the end of it. But don't limit your options. Um, try different things and... It's not just about finding the job that you love, but finding a workplace that you love and colleagues that you love and a place to live that you love and a lifestyle that you love. And that's how it's worked out for me. I've tried different things and I've eventually found my niche. And I think, you know, that when um, we recorded a podcast with, the primary, with Sam, the primary school teacher, we had a similar kind of conversation. and We came to the conclusion that... <sighs> We need to make it okay for for kids and teenagers to know that you're allowed to change your mind. That you know, too often we we ask kids at a very young age. I mean, I mean, and obviously beyond the asking a five year old, what do you want to be when you grow up? And we're talking about your fourteen and fifteen year old. They have to start picking their subjects. Then they have to kind of choose a path. Are they a science person, a maths person, an arts person, an English person? Um, and we expect them to know what their career is going like immediately. Like as soon as they're eighteen, or even before then, they have to choose from their guide. They have to know exactly what they want to do. Um, and and it's 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 dangerous. It's dangerous to get fixed into that because you get older and you discover you discover new things. You discover new opportunities. And a, again, you you figure out what it is you want from your life, not just from your job. And for some people, the job is quite genuinely just a job. It is a it is a vehicle by which you can earn money to facilitate the rest of your life. And I don't think anyone teaches you that. I don't think anyone teaches yeah. you that it's okay to just have a job. Well, I think there's more emphasis now on work-life balance. Mm. And I think you can go too far in either direction. So I know other people who have, you know, reached my age and still don't really know what they want to do with their lives. And they're, they're kind of, now they're running out of options because they're running out of time to become really skilled and move up in a particular industry because they've changed around so much. So I think... Yeah, but at the same time, it's a lot of pressure to be putting on a teenager to say you have to decide now what path you're going to take mm. and you're committed to that from this point on whether you like it or not. So definitely, I think it's good to, to keep your options open and stay flexible, but if you stay too flexible, you're just going to flop. <laughs> um Yeah, I, find, I, did, I did find it interesting what you were talking about with dreams. You know, I, I guess... There, 
so my so my dream at the moment is to be a TV screenwriter, and I'm and I'd like I, the idea of it sounds nice, but the reality was very different. Mm. And I wonder. I I always had this fear, and I think it's it, it's growing increasingly bigger. I was had this fear that by turning your dream into a job, you ruin the dream. <laughs> yeah, I think, and I think a lot of people do find that. Um, I know I love to. I love to bake and I love to throw high teas for my friends. And every time I do, someone inevitably says to me, oh, you should open a cafe. I just think, why would I want to do that? <laughs> Turn a fun hobby into a, a job of drudgery. <laughs> but I also think, you know, we talk about the idea of finding your dream job and if you, you know, love your work, you'll never work a day in your life and all that sort of thing. But is anyone's dream job being a cleaner? Is anyone's dream job working at a checkout, you know, is anyone's dream job being an accountant? I mean, there are people who do those jobs and do them well and are well suited to them. But at the end of the day, there are jobs that need to be done and and work is work. It's not fun. It's not recreation. Mm. You're getting paid for a reason because it's hard and not necessarily what you'd be doing with your time otherwise. (laughs) So, you know, you've got to be realistic about it as well. Mm. Uh, all right. Well, thanks for chatting to me, Emily. That was really fascinating, diving into the world of forensic botany. Um, so, listeners out there, if you have any more questions for Emily or if you are more curious about the world of being a scientist, feel free to post up questions on Facebook, send a tweet a message on tweet, uh, Twitter. Twitter. God, I'm so old. <laughs> um, uh, or there's a comment section on the website. Uh, there'll be a, a unique post just for Emily uh, and you can feel free to post up anything and I can see if I can follow up with her and... Uh, and get more information if that's what you seek. Uh, But thanks for listening. Uh, As always, make sure you follow us, subscribe, do all the fun social media things that uh, that I need you to do, please. Um, And uh, keep on listening. Make sure you check out our back catalogue. We've got some really good podcasts of varying uh, careers and varying paths. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. And remember, there are no small jobs, only jobs you haven't discovered yet.